Hi, welcome to Pitt Town Church. We are so glad that you're listening to this podcast. We pray that this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus. If you would like more information, check out our website at www.pitttownchurch.com. All right, we've got two Bible readings tonight. First one comes from Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. For, for look, darkness covers the earth, and total darkness the peoples. But the Lord will shine over you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your radiance. And the second reading is Matthew 5. 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to to your Father in heaven. Well, good evening, everyone. Nice to see you all. Let's let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. It is powerful and it's precious. And Father, we ask now as we come to look at these words from, from the Lord Jesus, Father, we ask that you would help us to understand them and that you would use them to help us and to challenge us that we would become more and more like him. And we pray that in his name. Amen. Well, sometimes in life, we just have to do things that we don't want to do. Sometimes you just can't avoid it. There are things that you just have to do or places that you have to go. Things just have to be done that you wish you didn't have to do them. And sometimes what what one person dreads, another person quite likes. For example, I I hate cooking. I don't, I I just wanna eat food. Sometimes I'll be at home and I'll say to my wife, Nix, I'll be at the fridge and I'll be like, there's no food here. There's just ingredients to make food. But I don't want ingredients. I want food. I want to eat food now. And I think that's why I hate oranges so much. Because there's so much effort involved before you can get to the food part. But if, you know, if I'm out and and there's fruit that's all just like already cut up, I'll eat all of it. But if I have to peel the orange, it's too, it's too hard. I think that's why I love grapes. I think because they're my favorite fruit. I think I like them so much because it's like they're already cut up into bite-sized bits. There's very little preparation. Anyways, the point is I don't like cooking. I like like food. I don't like ingredients. But other other people love to cook. But whether you love it or you don't, sometimes you, you just have to do it. Or you know you're at school or at uni and you got to do some stupid assignment that doesn't make sense and everything about it is you, you, you just hate everything. 
the sources are bad, but you just need to do the essay. You just need to do the assignment. It's not about learning anything. It's just about doing the stupid thing that the teacher has asked you to do. And so you just do it, even though you don't want to and you don't like it and you think it's dumb. And some people, you, you know, some, some people love speaking in public. Some people hate it, but sometimes you just have to do it. Some of us love working outside, working in the yard, mowing the lawn. Others of us hate it, but sometimes you just have to do it. Sometimes there's just things that you have to do. There are rules that you just have to follow, but you don't really want to. And so we can sometimes get quite creative about trying to work out ways out of it or ways around it or ways to minimize it or to get someone else to do it for us. And, and did you know, sometimes that mindset, we can bring that kind of mindset into our relationship with, with God as well, that sometimes God tells us we have to do stuff and sometimes we might not really want to do it. And so we try our best to get out of it or to minimize it as much as we can. We ask questions like, how much, uh, how much can I get away with? When does this actually technically become a sin? Or usually when we're kind of maybe in high school or, or we're young adults, we ask, how far can I go? But you know what? The thing about those questions or questions like that is that what we're actually asking is how close can I get to sinning before it's a sin? How close can I get to doing the wrong thing without actually doing the wrong thing? Because what we want to ask, when we ask questions like that, what we're thinking is, I want to enjoy the fun of sinning without actually sinning. Or I want to sin just, just a little bit, but not enough so that it counts. Because sometimes, deep inside, I don't actually want to obey what God says. And the reason why is because I have a pretty strong suspicion that it'll actually be better and more fun if I don't. And in those moments, what we end up saying to God is, look, I want to follow you. I want to, I guess I'll obey you, but I just wish sometimes you didn't have as many rules. And sometimes it would just be a whole lot easier if I could just do it my way instead. And so what I want us to see tonight is that when it comes to following Jesus and being on his team, Jesus wants to help us to get rid of questions like, how far can I go? Or how much can I get away with? And what he wants is to show us an entirely new way of obeying God's commands. And he wants to revolutionize how we think about every area of our Christian life. And so if you have it there, we're opening up to Matthew chapter 5, just the bit after what was read, Matthew 5 verses 17 
all the way through to verse 48, if you, if you have that there. Now, if you think way back in our first sermon, in our Sermon on the Mount sermon series, we looked at the Beatitudes, the blessings, like Tim's already reminded us, and, and we noticed how each of those blessings were actually blessings that were found way back in the Old Testament. And they were promises directed at Israel, directed at God's people about what it would be like when the Messiah, when God's chosen king arrived and when God's kingdom came. And then in week two, we saw that Jesus was calling his disciples to be salt and light and to stand out like a city on a hill. And what he meant was, they were to be distinct. They were to be different. They were to be separate and set apart. And this is just like how Israel was called to be different and distinct and set apart from all the other nations around them. And so you kind of get this vibe that Jesus was calling his followers to be the new people of God to be the true Israel, that they were to be what Israel was always supposed to be. And so one of the thoughts that you might have is that now that Jesus is building a new, true people of God, that maybe he was going to throw out all of that old stuff, especially the law, and, and kind of start again. And so Jesus tackles that thought straight up. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Don't assume that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. So instead of of doing away with all this Old Testament stuff, instead you can see how Jesus is actually pretty pro all of those things. He's not going to destroy it, he's going to fulfill it. He he is the climax of the story. All all the hopes and dreams of the Old Testament were coming true in him. It was like he himself was the reality that all the promises were pointing to. And so he's not getting rid of it. He's not getting rid of the commandments either. He's not saying those things don't matter anymore. He's not throwing them out. He's not editing them. He's not minimizing them. He's actually doing the opposite. He says in verse 20, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, just because I am going to fulfill the law and just because the way into God's kingdom isn't by being perfect and doing all the right things and being spiritually rich, but instead being spiritually poor, spiritually bankrupt, even though all that's true, I'm not then saying that righteousness doesn't matter. Righteousness is still absolutely important. 
Now, let's just pause here for a moment because righteousness is another one of those Christian-y, religious-y words that no one else really uses. It's just us. And normally, I think, when we hear the word righteous, we often hear it with the word self next to it, self-righteous. And when someone's self-righteous, what that means is they think that they're better than everyone and they think that everyone else is beneath them. And someone who's self-righteous is judgy and, and arrogant and, and just awful to be around. But that's not what Jesus means. When, when Jesus, when the Bible uses the word righteousness, what it means is doing what's right or doing the right thing. And of course, lots of people have lots of different ideas about what the right thing is and what it means to do the right thing. But what we're talking about with righteousness is what God says is right. Living life the way that God has designed it to be lived. And at first, if I'm honest, it sounds a bit lame. Just doing what's right. That sounds lame. But when you meet someone who does what's right like this, they're actually amazing. And, and y- y- you want to be around them. Someone who is righteous like this, it means that they're, they're kind and they're thoughtful and they're gracious and they're caring. And it means that they don't, they don't lie to you or they don't talk about you behind your back, but they encourage you and they believe in you and they want what's best for you and you can, you can trust them and they genuinely listen to you. They don't just wait for their turn to talk. And it's someone who's not selfish or arrogant, but they're patient and joyful and trustworthy. And those kind of people are rare. And when you find someone like that, you love being around them and you want to become more like them. That's because they're righteous. That's what it, that's what it looks like. And so when you find someone, a truly righteous person, they're actually pretty cool to be around. And that's what Jesus has in mind with this word righteousness. And so here in verse 20, this is Jesus' big principle, his big overarching principle that he then unpacks for the rest of the chapter. And it's his, it's his big principle for how he wants us to approach every single circumstance in life. And so you can summarize this principle like this, maximum righteousness, not minimum requirement. Maximum righteousness, not minimum requirement. So let's look at it again. Verse 20, he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're not that familiar with the scribes and the Pharisees, this might not make that much sense. Or if you only know a little bit about Jesus' story, maybe you know that the Pharisees are basically Jesus' enemies. And that's true. If Jesus is having some kind of verbal argument, it's a good bet 
that he's having it with one of the Pharisees. But if you were there, if you, if you were there 2,000 years ago, then you would have a very different view of this group because the Pharisees were the most righteous, religious Israelites around. They were known for their passion to obey every last bit of God's law, every minute detail. They didn't want to break any of it. They, they, they were meticulous about it. No one was more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. And so when Jesus says, your righteousness must surpass, must exceed the Pharisees, the appropriate response is, <laughs> what? That is not possible. That is not possible. <laughs> that is that that kind of idea that that your righteousness would surpass theirs is just outrageous that you would possibly these people were fanatics these were the professionals these were the people there's no way you could be more righteous than them jesus what you're asking is impossible. But it's not impossible. Jesus actually had a fundamentally different way of approaching God's commands. He had a totally different way of approaching righteousness and how you do it and how you cultivate it. Because one of Jesus' main criticisms of the scribes and the Pharisees was that they were focused on external righteousness, that they were focused on getting things right on the outside. And Jesus' constant rebuke was that real righteousness, true righteousness comes from inside, comes from the heart, that, that what was on the inside was more important than what was, what was on the outside. And Jesus is going to talk more about this next week as Tim unpacks for us chapter 6. But for now, the point for us is that the Pharisees were concerned more about looking righteous, appearing righteous, externally righteous, and Jesus wants to show us that true righteousness, real righteousness goes way deeper than that. Because for the Pharisees, the goal was to do everything you could not to break the law. And they were actually, what they were actually aiming for was minimum requirement. And minimum requirement is how we obey laws too. That's how our laws work. Imagine there's a big electrical power plant. There's like electricity everywhere and it's like buzzing. And there's a big fence all the way around it, real, real tall. And all over it, there are warnings like, you know, high voltage, stay out, danger all over it. But what that means is, you know, you could get close to the fence and you haven't done anything wrong. You could even touch the fence and you haven't done anything wrong. When you break the law is when you climb over the fence and now you're inside. 
That's how our rules, that's how our laws work. Imagine you're, you're driving a car and the speed limit is 80 kilometers per hour. Now, if you go 70, have you broken the law? No. If you go 75, no. 78, no. Even if you go 80, you haven't broken the law. You only technically break the law when you go 81. And then in like, in like real life, you gotta go faster than that so they can definitely get you and you can't dispute it. But technically, up until 81, even 80, you've done no nothing wrong. You only break the law when you cross over into 81. And the thing was, that's how the Pharisees thought God's laws worked. They thought that's how righteousness worked, that, that you could get as close as possible and as long as you didn't jump the fence, as long as you didn't go 81, then you were keeping the law. You, you could get as close as possible and as long as you didn't jump the fence, you were righteous. Minimum requirement was how the scribes and the Pharisees obeyed the law. As long as you didn't break it, you were all good. But Jesus has a different approach to God's laws. Minimum requirement is very different to maximum righteousness. Maximum righteousness is how you obey the laws when you genuinely want to honor God with the way that you live. Minimum requirement is what you do when you don't really want to obey the law, when you just want to see how much you can get away with. That's very different. And so then Jesus unpacks this view in a whole bunch of concrete examples. He shows how it works when it comes to anger and sex and marriage and promises and getting even. And what we're going to do here is we're going to spend our time just looking at the first of those examples, anger, and just to see kind of how the principle works. Then we're going to leave the rest of them for you to dig into in your growth group or in your own personal Bible reading. So example number one starts in verse 21. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors don't murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. So it's like, okay, so far, so good. Let's, uh, let's all agree. Let's try our best not to murder people. Agreed. And so we know that anything past the safety fence of murder is wrong. We know anything past the speed limit of murder is wrong. But that means anything up to murder is until I technically kill a person, then I haven't murdered them. And so as long as I don't actually end their life, then I haven't actually broken the law. And then, therefore, thus, consequently, hence, ergo, I am righteous. And so I could torture them. I could hurt them. 
I could abuse them, I could humiliate them, I could embarrass them, make fun of them, any of those things. So long as I don't kill them, then I've done nothing wrong. I'm still on paper, good. But Jesus says, well, life in the kingdom of heaven, true righteousness, if you really want to follow me, Jesus says, then I see things very differently. Verse 22, he says, but I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to the Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. Jesus says, murder is wrong. And so if crossing the fence is wrong, then you shouldn't even get on the path that leads to the fence. Do not murder doesn't mean don't just end someone's life. Do not murder means human lives are so precious and they're so valuable. And so you wouldn't want to do anything that would belittle them or to treat them like they don't matter. If, if murder is wrong, then we won't even get on the path that leads to murder. Jesus says, if you get angry with someone, if you call someone a fool or a moron, then you'll be subject to judgment and hell. And the reason why is because when you murder someone, you say, you don't matter. And when you think that someone's an idiot or a waste of space, you're saying, you don't matter. And so in the heart, it's the same thing. When you belittle someone or humiliate them, you're on the same path that leads to murder. And, it, and it's a one-way path. And so Jesus says, well, don't even get on it. See how that's totally different to minimum requirement? It's a totally different way of thinking about righteousness and about doing what God wants and about how to honor Jesus. It's not about fulfilling the token minimum requirements. It's about maximizing righteousness. But there's more. See, because Jesus' view of the do not murder commandment isn't just that we should avoid doing negative things to people. He also says the point of it is also to inspire us to do positive things for people. So he says, verse 23, so if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus says, if you've come to the temple to fulfill your religious duty and to do your sacrificial religious things, and there's someone that you've wronged or you've behaved poorly towards, don't think that you can just come and do your religious posturing and that God doesn't know. Jesus says, 
reconciling relationships is so important that it's even more important than offering sacrifices at the temple. And it's certainly much more important than turning up to church on time and saying a vigorous amen in the prayers. I think sometimes all of us are prone to think, me included, I think we're sometimes prone to think that religious ceremony is more important than genuine love for people. You know, sure, I treated that person really poorly, but I am up to date on my Bible reading plan. And so for sure, God is super impressed with that. For sure, super impressed. And of course, personal Bible reading is really important. But Jesus reminds us here that just ceremonially doing the right things doesn't cover over a genuine lack of righteousness when it comes to relationships. And so the murder commandment is meant not just to warn us against certain things, but it's also meant to inspire us towards fixing our relationships with people. See how Jesus has a radically different, a radically deeper view of righteousness. He says, so you've joined my team. Here's how to live. Here's the game plan. The kingdom that I'm bringing isn't just about token minimum requirements. It's actually about maximum righteousness. But the question is why? Why does Jesus want us to live like this and treat people like this? And the answer is the reason why Jesus wants us to treat people like this is because this is how God treats you. Come to the last paragraph, verses 43 to 48. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Because here, Jesus kind of wraps up and concludes this maximum righteousness thought. And he says, verse 43, you've heard that it was said love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, just first of all, God said often in the old Testament that Israel, his people needed to love their neighbor, but he never said that they should hate their enemies. People added that in because they thought it made sense. But then Jesus says to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And why, why should we do that? Well, he says, verse 45, the reason why is so that you may be sons of your father in heaven. Because when you love your enemies and when you reach out to them and do good to them and treat them with kindness that they have not deserved, if you do that, then you'll display the family likeness. You'll, you'll treat them the way that God treats people. Because that's how God treats you. Everyone in this room, 
who has put their trust in Jesus as their king was once God's enemy. We all treated him poorly. Our relationship was in ruins and God could have said, ah, forget them, forget him, forget her, but he didn't. Instead, he reached out to us. Instead, he crossed the chasm for us. Instead, he paid the price for us. He died for us. He loves us. And he loves us when we did not love him. He loved you when you were enemies. And he reached out to you and he did good to you and he treated you with kindness that you did not deserve, that I did not deserve. And so God expects us to treat people like that because that's how we've been treated. God wants us to be like him. Verse 48, he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we talked about this way back in week one, where if you think that you need to do all of these things in order for God to love you, in order for him to accept you, then this verse is crushing for you. Be perfect and only then will God accept you. It's like, good luck. But it's like, that's not the way that it works. God already loves you. God has already brought you to himself. God has already accepted you. You already belong because of Jesus' work on the cross. There are no tryouts. There are no auditions. You're on the team. And now, because of the cross, because of grace, this is how Jesus wants us to live. This is how the team works. This is how he wants us to behave and to treat people. He wants us to become more and more like our heavenly father. He wants us to more and more reflect the family resemblance, to treat people the way that God has treated us. And so if you're on Jesus' team, if you want to follow him and live his way, then what he's showing us is an entirely new way to obey God's commands and a totally different way to, th to think about righteousness. Jesus wants to help us get rid of questions like, how far can I go? Or how much can I get away with? Or when is it technically a sin? He wants to help us get rid of those questions. And he wants to revolutionize how we think about every area of our life. Instead of shallow minimum requirement, he's calling us to live a life of maximum righteousness. To live life and to treat people the way that God treats people. That we would more and more be aiming for that, that little bit by little bit, we'd be becoming people like that. Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Let's pray. Heavenly father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus who was perfect. And Father, we thank you for him and for all that he has done 
for us. And Father, we pray and ask that each one of us, that you would help us not to live lives of, of minimum requirement, but Father, help us to live lives of maximum righteousness. Not, not so that we can earn anything or so that you love us and accept us, but because we already know you do. So Father, thank you for bringing us onto your team. Father, help us to get on board with how it works. And Father, we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.